starting this morning's discussion of history um, and historical precedents or historical uh, background and how they problematize the notion of sectarianism today, I wanted to um, invite you to indulge in a little nostalgia with me, uh, maybe not of the kind of Adonis, as uh, Osama was reminding us yesterday, not a nostalgia for a secular past, but rather for a cosmopolitan past in the pre-modern period. And I, you know, want to sort of uh, offer you by way of visual entertainment, as we indulge in this nostalgia, a few very low-tech pictures and a little poetry, um, which I will be referring to as I uh, proceed. So my paper wants to investigate the historical precedent in dealing with difference within Islam, in particular a Shi'i precedent from the 10th through the 12th centuries. This period was notable for several reasons. It saw the establishment of a Shi'i caliphate in North Africa and Egypt. It witnessed important developments in Shi'i doctrine, which included formulations and reformulations of Shi'ism's relationship to other branches of Islam. And as such, this historical backdrop serves to remind that framing difference in terms of binary opposition was not the only precedent offered by history to the current misuse of it by sectarianism. Rather, it includes ecumenical frameworks that historians posit produce a cosmopolitan Islam. Al-Tabari, a well-known medieval historian, uh, notes in his annal, or in his uh, chronicle for the year 282-895, in this year, the Shi'i Muhammad bin Zayd al-Alawi sent 32,000 dinars from Kabaristan to Muhammad bin Ward for distribution to his followers in Baghdad and Kufa, as well as in Mecca and Medina. Muhammad bin Ward was taken to the house of Badr and questioned about the matter. He mentioned that Muhammad bin Zayd had been sending him the like amount of money every year. Badr then informed the Sunni Abbasid Caliph al-Muqtadid about this. Al-Muqtadid asked Badr whether he did not remember the dream he once related to him. I saw myself in a dream, leaving Baghdad with my army. Many onlookers were watching me. I passed by a man standing upon a hill. He was praying and paid me no attention. I approached him and stopped in front of him. He asked me whether I recognized him, and he said, I am Ali bin Abi Talib. Take this spade and hit the ground with it. The number of your descendants who will successively become caliphs will correspond to the number of times you have hit the ground. Exhort them to be good to my descendants. Al-Mu'tadid continued to bug. So release the money and release this man, Muhammad bin Ward, and allow him to distribute whatever he does openly. The story of Abbasid period of Islamic history, often referred to as the classical period, is rich with historical lessons and precedents. As we shall hear, they have been mined for sectarian hostility today. Contrary to the rhetoric of contemporary sectarians, however, as this report from Atabari's annals indicates, they did not always include the violence assumed to characterize relations between Sunni and Shi'i Islam. To be sure, historians like Atabari and other commentators of the period also reported many incidents of hostility between Sunni and Shia. Hostility that served, for example, as a backdrop to the martyrdom of the Prophet's descendants or Imams of the Shia civil strife and rebellions, and neighborhood turf wars 
between the two camps, even in the capital of Baghdad. Something's never changed, apparently. But this period also witnessed acknowledgement of Islam's pluralism, as this dream report from Athabari indicates. Perhaps more significantly, such acknowledgement was also evident in the policies of a Shi'i caliphate established soon after this conversation between al-Mu'tadid and Badr. In 909, the Ismaili Shi'i caliphate established itself in present-day Tunisia, a revolutionary trendsetter in so many ways. Three years later, when a Fatimid general entered Egypt, Al-Tabari notes without elaborating that he had tentatively offered an amen or a guarantee of safety to the Egyptians before his eventual retreat. The Fatimids persisted in their aim of conquering Egypt from the Abbasids in the following decades, as well as in fine-tuning their relations with those they conquered in North Africa, who were largely Maliki, Sunni, and Khairiji. In 969, the Fatimids achieved their aim of conquering Egypt, and again an amen or a guarantee of safety was offered. As recorded in the chronicles of the period, it proclaimed, it's a very long amen, which includes many things, but the relevant bits. In the name of God, they, the delegation, have mentioned on your behalf that you seek a guarantee of amen for yourselves, your wealth, your lands, and all your matters. So praise God for what he, the commander of the faithful, has bestowed upon you. He has instructed me to administer your inheritance according to the Book of God and the Sunnah of the Prophet. He has instructed me to undertake the repair of your mosques and adorn them with carpets and lighting. I will give those who call to prayers their allowance. Islam consists of one Sunnah and a Sharia followed by all. You shall continue in your madhab. You shall be permitted to perform your obligations according to religious scholarship and to remain steadfast in the beliefs of the worthy ancestors from the companions of the prophet and those who succeeded them, the jurists of the cities who have pronounced judgments according to their madhabs and fatwas, the call to prayer and its performance, the fasting in the month of Ramadan, the breaking of the fast and the celebration of its nights, the alms tax, pilgrimage, and the undertaking of jihad will be maintained according to the command of God and his book and in accordance with the instruction of his prophet, and the limbis will be treated according to previous custom. Blessings of God be upon our master Muhammad and his righteous, pure, and best progeny. Whereas the Abbasid Caliph al-Mu'tadid extended an amnesty to Shia operating in his realm, the Fatimid general Jauhar here proclaims on behalf of his master, al-Mu'iz, commander of the faithful rather than the imam, that he would, among other things, protect and uphold Sunni Islam in Egypt. In fact, the only, guarantee, the only indication this guarantee was offered by Shia authority lies in its closing lines, wherein blessings are called upon the Prophet and his descendants. How could such an example of ecumenism be reconciled with numerous reports of intracommunal hostility that we call sectarianism? For that matter, what is sectarianism in Islam? One might point to the production of heresiographical or fiddok literature in the classical period, which established a taxonomy of religious groups, but this literature was often polemical rather than canonical, even in the terms used to refer to different groups, as you pointed out, fiddok, ta'ifa, madhab, etc., etc. The development of legal schools of thought, or madhabs, defined certain bounds of acceptable difference, but their affiliations were voluntary and porous. 
Philosophers and theologians as well debated the bounds of acceptable belief, but their opinions on such matters were generally inaccessible and ultimately discredited. And there are the social networks and neighborhoods defined by specific Islamic persuasions which often clashed, often violently so, but perhaps not always over religious difference. Then again, Islam's lexicon is rife with binary distinctions. Dar al-Islam, Dar al-Harb, Muslim kafir, Muslim dhimmi, etc. These were particularly useful politically and physically, but they were applied rather elastically. In short, against this voluminous but inconclusive evidence, the same conclusion is that sectarianism in Islam, whatever it is and wherever it happened, was at best contingent. Moreover, Islam produced alternatives that espoused coterminous rather than binary categories of exclusive identity that were equally numerous. These alternatives were Quranically sourced, often legally debated and socially accepted, and therefore equally authoritative. They pervade examples such as the early Islamic theological debates of the Murja'ah that considered the relationship of Mu'min to Muslim, or the legal discourse of Niya or intent and how it informed the issue of belief and performance of ritual obligations, or the Sufi literature extolling Baqan and Zahir in its exploration of degrees of devotional commitment to the worship of the divine. They also included the conceptualizing of Shi'ism's relationship to Sunni and other branches of Islam. Which brings us back to the Fatimids and Ismaili Shi'ism. The Fatimids and the Ismaili Shi'ism, of which they were spiritual heads, let there be light, uh, or imams, very Ismaili thing, Q Ismaili Shi'ism, light. The Fatimids and the Ismaili Shi'ism, of which they were spiritual heads or imams, partook of a variety of fashions in the classical period. It was trendy at the time to seek authoritative religious guidance in the imams from the Prophet's family as a counter to the cacophony of religious opinions that resulted from the large multicultural empire that Islam had achieved by that. In fact, some historians have argued that the 10th century and the 900s is the Shi'i century. So it's very trendy to be Shi'i of some kind. It was trendy as well to invest in that religious guidance of the imams, something of the qualities of a philosopher king and seer, seer, as described by the ancient Greeks and Gnostics being translated and thus debated by Muslims at the time. And it was trendy to assume that the imams' guidance was accessible at differing levels of comprehension to the multitudes. It was, in short, trendy, if not easy and possible, for everyone to be Ismaili Shi'i by the 10th century. Ismaili Shi'ism ultimately conceived of belief in hierarchical terms, albeit in a manner that conceptually linked core belief in its imam to a series of concentric circles radiating outward that encompass shared beliefs with other Muslims and ultimately with other monotheists. According to the oft-quoted hadith or report about the fifth Imam Muhammad al-Baqir in Shi'i tradition, in which he discusses the Quranic terms Iman, Iman and Islam in a manner echoed in Sunni as well as in Sufi literature as just noted, he represented the Imam, Muhammad al-Baqir represented Islam as the outer circle and Iman as the inner circle. Hence, Iman includes Islam no one can be a mu'min without being a Muslim. The use of the terms iman and islam here frame a discussion in an Ismaili legal source 
about the need to obey a ruling Fatiman. Conversely, this articulation of faith also implied that while a mu'min is by definition a Muslim, a Muslim can also be a non-mu'min. Or as the Imam Muhammad al-Bakr says, al-Iman yashrik al-Islam, wal-Islam la yashrik al-Iman. Thus, the Fatimid general Jauhar, addressing the non-Ismaili Egyptian audience, speaks to their Islam by presenting an aman, it's very tongue-twisting, all these words, by presenting it a guarantee from a caliph rather than an imam, even while concluding on an unequivocally she note by invoking blessings on the Prophet's family. Leaving aside more cynical calculations, such language in the aman and the guarantee could only be justified as an application of Iman Islam. Such a distinction between Ismailis versus non-Ismailis informed a range of policies in Fatimid Egypt, which institutionalized pluralism in a coterminous and inclusive manner, rather than through a policy of periodic tolerance toward discrete and exclusive groupings, as was the case with Al-Mu'tabid. It organized the relationship of the state to its subjects as one that radiated degrees of religious authority, even while it bound all to its political authority. But how was this received by the non-Ismaili Egyptian public? We have two types of sources on the period. Those intended for the Ismaili public, preserved by Ismaili communities that celebrated the Fatimids as imams and Ismaili sacred history and doctrines, and those that recorded events of the Fatimid period from the perspective of non-Ismaili Fatimid administrators and historians. The latter was preserved by historians such as Taqi al-Din al-Makrizi, who died in 1442. He hailed from a Sunni Mamluk background some three centuries after the Fatimid period, and as such was safely immune from Ismaili outreach. Nevertheless, among his many works was a history of the Fatimids titled Da'az al-Hanafa, the Akbar al-Fatimiyun al-Khulafa. Significantly, the title of this work accepts Fatimid claims of their Alid lineage through the Prophet's daughter Fatma and acknowledges their caliphal status. Al-Makrizi also authored a monumental topography of the Fatimids' imperial capital of Cairo, in which he relies on previous contemporary Fatimid sources to relay not only their physical imprint on the city left by the Fatimids in buildings such as the Mosque of Al-Azhar, but also descriptions of their activities in it. In this topography, the Khitat, Al-Makrizi concludes, sorry, includes record of Fatimid ceremonial as it was perceived by non-Ismaili Egyptians. Paula Sanders has argued that what was distinctive about Fatimid ceremonial was that it was urban and processional, as opposed to private and static, like Abbasid ceremonial, and as such invited engagement with and buy-in from their multi-religious public. Sources such as the Khitat describe two varieties of Fatimid ceremonial processions. She, such as the processions involving the events of Badir Khom, and Nanshi, such as those commemorating the Eids and the New Year or the beginning of the Nile River's yearly season of inundation. Both genres of ceremony, nevertheless, involved inscribing Ismaili Shi'i meaning on the non-Ismaili Shi'i public sphere in a performance of the multivalent symbolism of Iman Islam. 
Central to the ceremonies was the Fatimid Imam Caleb's exit from his palace in varieties of ceremonial robes of white, a Fatimid color, under a parasol that symbolized the palace and indicated the presence of the Imam Caliph and featured in design the innermost circle of Iman at one and the same time. Under his parasol, the Imam Caliph was attended by a retinue whose arrangement around his person reflected the hierarchy of state and military. The entire ensemble would proceed from a viewing platform or manzara at a gate to the imperial city through the surrounding urban landscape in a procession that brought the Fatimids in contact with various urban constituencies such as merchants, craftsmen, religious elites, and landmarks. My procession, the procession has left the gates, saying, it must continue. Um, the processions brought the Fatimids in contact with various urban constituencies such as merchants, craftsmen, religious elites, and landmarks in what Sanders refers to as a ritual city. The Shi'i state embraced and claimed without at the same time converting all. All right, so since I only have two minutes left, <laughs> let me jump to my crude handouts. One of which uh, contains, I think, on the verso side of it, uh, the reverse side of it, a diagram in Sanders' uh, book that attempts to kind of schematically inform you of the ways in which um, elites of the Fatimid court were assembled around the person of the caliph as they proceeded through the city. Fatimid ceremonial involved a dynamic symbolism and way of speaking to the non-Ismaili public and endured, as Sanders put it, as a ritual lingua, lingua franca in Cairo in Egypt, even after the fall of the dynasty. The late Irene Bierman explored other kinds of Fatimid outreach to the non-Ismaili publics. She examines coins, for example, which are arguably the most public of texts in that they circulate beyond the state, even, in networks of trade. As Bierman and other numismatic scholars have noted, Fatimid dinars both visually and verbally, verbally communicate the Iman-Islam construct of communal identity. What was distinctive about Fatimid coins was, again, that they were uh, minted with a format of several series of concentric circles, the center of which represents Iman and radiates out to legends that all could buy into because they were Islam, okay? The other thing that she looked at were monuments, big public monuments like Al-Hakim's Mosque outside of Cairo. One of the handouts has a, a picture of a minaret or a sketch of a minaret from Al-Hakim's Mosque. And at the bottom of that minaret, you see a round circle. That round circle involves a, a rondelle with a law printed in the middle or carved in the middle, um, which is to the side of the depiction of the minaret on that handout. What Bierman has argued about mosques like Al-Hakim and the public text that the Fatimids produced on them was that given the placing of these texts, of these inscriptions on the facade of the mosque and the minarets, 
you have varying levels, again, of Iman and Islam and Batan and Zahir. So at the street level, at eye level, is Allah. Above it are verses that have bivalent meanings, meanings that are significant to Ismailis, as well as a meaning more accessible to the general Muslim public. And above that, again, uh, verses from the Quran that would have double meaning uh, to Muslims and Ismailis that involve light and the role of light in the, uh, in the manifestation of divine will. I was going to give you one more example of a minor character uh, whose memoir I found in Tunisia on a research trip there, a Spanish Muslim by the name of Omaya uh, bin Abi Salt, a Dani, and uh, his trials and tribulations when he left the Ta'ifa uh, period or the Ta'ifa landscape of Spain uh, in search of patronage at the cosmopolitan court of the Fatimids in the early 11th century, but uh, apparently I don't really have time for that. So <laughs> let me jump to the conclusion, which is uh, what happened then to this Fatimid project of trying to create an ecumenical and inclusive identity which institutionalized pluralism within uh, an Islamic framework while at the same time privileging uh, the belief of the Ismailis. In a sense, the Fatimids were victims of their own cosmopolitan or ecumenical success. Their religious policy allowed, at the end of the day, for the existence, if not efflorescence, of Sunni methods, which the advent of military states that followed led to the demise of their own Ismaili community, who were expunged from Egypt and survive only in a few millions outside it. The military elites that rose to power after the Fatimids inverted the model of religious authority emanating from above. Instead, in view of their own tenuous legitimacy, they sought strategic alliance with the diffused religious classes of Sunni Islam from below in the effort to co-opt them through patronage, hence military patronage states. This ultimately led to the hegemony of Sunni Islam and its populist tendencies to enforce dogma and behavioral norms in the public sphere. Modernity has, of course, further enhanced these tendencies, eviscerating as it has the intellectual bedrock of a cosmopolitan Islam in favor of a standardized, domesticated Islam. In so doing, it has produced its, in its own opposition an equally aspirationally monolithic form of Islam with the resulting sectarianism rending the Islamic world today. Thank you. Secularism, I guess, is, is to me, and it's something maybe a little bit uh, uh, inspired by Osama Mafizi's wonderful talk yesterday, is that I think we have to look at the problem of sectarianism dialectically. And of course, it's a fashionable term, and I think it really applies here. That is to say, in every way, looking at sectarianism and secularism in a dialectical way, looking at the internal sources and the external sources of sectarianism in the region. 
And um, also, what I'm trying to do in this little snippet here is looking at this curious phenomenon of a denial of sectarianism on the one hand and an exploitation of sectarianism on the other hand. And I don't just refer to local players, but also to regional players. And this talk, by the way, I think it almost fits into the political uh, section. I don't know. I mean, it's gonna, I'm going to have some history in it, maybe. And, and sorry if it's a little bit incoherent because there was a special issue that came out, which I edited not so well because I was under time pressure, but it's there, and if you want to take a look at it, it's, I think, freely available online. We had a conference in Qatar, and I got a big research grant from the Qataris, very much to my surprise, I must say, because it's a very controversial topic there. And the word tarifia really, when I first introduced it a few years ago to my students, Lebanon, the Lebanese students knew what I was talking about, the Qataris feigned innocence, or the Saudis, etc., or you know, really were ignorant, certainly about that term. But, um, you know, today I think it's become uh, the term of the hour. And I'm, I'm a little bit sort of, um, well, we'll get to that in a bit, but just to sort of very quickly look at this term, sectarianism, it's true that the term ta'ifiya as democracy, demokratia, jumhuriya, almania, all these terms, as you well know, um, are all coined in the 19th century, and ta'ifiya, in fact, even later, uh, uh, in the 20th only. I mean, even though uh, when the Lebanese were doing their constitution, Osama probably knows this, in 1926, uh, uh, the constitution, they didn't have a word for citizen even, right? So the word, they first drafted it in French, Michel Shihad did, and Citoyen Libanais, and then they came up with the word Watani The word Muwatan wasn't coined at that point in time in the 20th century. So, Taifia similarly, but that doesn't mean. I think that we should discount the notion of that there was a concept of something akin to what we talk today about sectarianism in the works of somebody like Ibn Khaldun or uh, many others. And indeed, this is the topic, for instance, by Ibn Khaldun, which talks about you know this kind of bias of being with your group, whether they're wrong or, or the right, or wrong or the right, you act with them. And similarly, a Lebanese soldiers who defected, defected to Jabhat the Nusra recently. He, I think, defines sectarianism in a certain way, which is bias, you know, and saying that terrorists are not those defending their sect. And I think this is what it is. It is a survival instinct. It is something that has been remarked to, again, I say Ibn Khaldun, but also, of course, uh, people like Rousseau and even America. And in that sense, it is uh, something that's not incidental. And it is, uh, you know, this is very controversial. I hope people wake up kind of because I have a controversial stake on this. I think to a degree it is an instinct. At least that's the way it is often depicted by people in Kaboom. But the question is, you know, how is this survival instinct? It doesn't have to be related, obviously, to psychic, related in Europe to your race, or to your nation, and that, that. That's a little bit beside the point. But how is it provoked by internal and external actors? And to what degree is it inherited and constructed? I think, you know, if you ask, and I think I do this in the introductory chapter to that volume on sectarianism, is sectarianism a conspiracy constructed by foreign powers, or is it an inbred instinct, and you know, inherited by religion or by uh, kinship ties? And I think it's both to some degree. So that's the, the, the take. You have here in Lebanon this kind of lines servants to the Zaim um, in all sects. So it's not just an Islamic thing, obviously. And here we have Osama's right here, and I have uh, his quote, which is unfair because I didn't quote the whole thing. I'm just using it as a as a sort of a, uh, illustrative point, this notion, uh, because I think your, your phrase goes on there, it's the, I'm cutting it off there, I'm um, uh, that it is, you know, 
in invention. And then we have Hamid Frangia, who was one of the fellows on the committee in 1925 the Lebanese Constitution, who claims, because that debate was held amongst, for instance, the Lebanese with the Constitution, you know, is this thing something inherited or not? How do we frame the laws to take account of it? And he says, you know, it's wrong to just blame the French for it. It's something we want. And indeed, if you look at the, I'm coming out with an article on this in the framing of the Lebanese Constitution, if you look at it, those clauses in the Lebanese Constitution are not really so much the French thing, it's the Lebanese themselves. There was one delegate who was against it, but of all the committee, all of them agreed we needed to have these, uh, these safeguards. So, the major sources, I'm going very quickly here, but the major sources of sectarianism, or if you want to flip it, the stumbling blocks of secularism in the region. I think the first one, which I'm going to focus on mainly in this talk, is ideological. Uh, the notion that it is a denial to start out with. There's a distortion of the terms, uh, also secularism, of course, and stigmatization of the latter. There's a sociological thing. I don't, you know, we can, it's very familiar to you, I think, the notion that autocrats have fomented it. And thirdly, there's the exploitation of it, uh, both internal and externally in the region. Um, the denial of sectarianism is not something that's confined to the, you know, hardcore, if you want, of, uh, radical French, but I chose here quotes from so-called moderates or, you know, uh, scholars, if you want, or modern scholars, if you want, but I'd want to say it, uh, Hassan Hanafi, etc., who basically uh, discount the notion of, you know, secularism, so speak, and claim, again, very often that sectarianism, sectarian violence, really is not uh, much of an issue. We have Rashid Vanushi, very much celebrated as a reformer, but likewise, he has on the one hand uh, denied the relevance of secularism often, and of course he's changed that discourse a little bit sometimes, but on the other hand, he has, as we know from behind closed doors, um, colluded with uh, Salafis in Tunisia in one of these leaked conversations, uh, where he's basically saying, look, I'm having this discourse for public consumption, but don't worry, we're going to take over the state as a whole. So you have, again, this on one hand the denial, on the other hand the exploitation. It goes further to people like Hassan Nasrallah of Hezbollah, of course, who contradicts himself, sometimes saying that, um, we can discuss this with the specialists on Lebanon, um, you know, saying that this, the, the Islamic State is not a, a goal, other times affirming it. A very f incredible Voltefach uh, of Nasrallah was, if you recall, with the cartoons. You remember the cartoon controversy a while back. And at that point, he was saying it's a right of us to start a jihad, to you know, kill people who uh, do these uh, derogatory, defamatory cartoons of the prophet, so much so good. But then, in 2015, to the surprise of many, he made the statement that the Takfiri terrorists have insulted Islam more than even those who have attacked the messenger of God. So he made a complete volta faccia, and that begs the question of why. I mean, now you can interpret this in many ways, one way is to say that he wanted to portray, and this is of course a different context, a different Sitzen Leben to Koch Kant, so at this point he wanted maybe to portray his as being the more moderate uh, group as opposed to the Salafi, uh, the Takfiris who were wrecking havoc next door in Syria. Be that as it may, you see of Al-Tafashi. Uh, Yusuf Kaladawi, um, of course, likewise, I'm sure you're familiar with that, at one point he had sympathized with his in 2006, and then later he did a Takfir of his own uh, saying and saying that he wished he had never done that, and now even calling for the killing of civilian alawites, not just even uh, regime. Uh, Saudi, 
uh, itself has had a double stance as a Saudi ambassador after the Charlie Hebdo uh, story, uh, you know, showing his uh, solidarity with Charlie Hebdo, participating. But at the same time, as we well know, Saudi Arabia domestically and elsewhere is um, just kind of, this is a value Bedoui, very pleased, you're all familiar with that case, I'm sure. And so at the one hand, you're synthesizing with Charlie Hebdo, on the other hand, you're going after very, I would say, you know, harmless uh, fellows. And within Saudi, we'll get this later maybe a little bit, I'll just say that about Qatar as well, which I'm familiar with. I think you just have to look at it, again we go back to Ibn Khaldun, sectarianism works, right? So for the Saudis and for the Gulfis and for the Qataris and for everyone actually, basically it's a temptation. It's how do we counter Iran? Well, the discourse is there, how do we create this solidarity? That is really a weapon that they don't want to give up. On the other hand, they are worried that it will backfire to some degree, and they, you know, it, it, it is this contradiction that is going on within the discourse on many levels. The denial was obvious in Syria. We have here people like Burhan Ghaliun, who claims there were no Salafis at a time. There was other people, even, you know, journalists. And one should say this is not just a phenomenon in the Middle East, the denial. It is also visible in the Western media. It was visible in the way the Syrian and Iraq conflict, other conflicts were caught, uh, Libya, etc., were covered in the beginning. Um, to you know, after having defamed Hassan al or exposed his contradictions, one should say also that when he made the statement in, it was in 2000, I forgot, 2012, I think, I think 40 or so, Shia were killed by a suicide bomber um, in Beirut. And he came, as you may recall, on to um, uh, give a speech and said, anyone who accuses the dear Sunni sect is an Israeli agent. The problem was the New York Times and the BBC inverted that talk completely and said uh, the BBC had Hassan al-Salaam or Hezbollah blamed Sunnis for terrorist bombing. He said exactly the opposite. And that begs the question to me, of why that is going on, and there we go into the realm of a little bit of conspiracy. This is from WikiLeaks from 2006, I think, counseling the playing and the playing, uh, the playing up of Sunni fears of Iranian influence in Syria. This is way before you know the current uprising. But you know why would the New York Times and BBC totally invert the words of Hassan Nasr Allah? Well, this gives you a clue, I think, of the whole thing, and there are many other. Ideas of this. And this brings me to the notion of exploitation. It is an exploitation, as I said, within, but also from without. Um, Obama himself has at one point all but confessed to this, why he didn't want to go against ISIS all the way, because you know it would have relieved the pressure against uh, Baghdad. We have prior instances, I'm flying over this because we don't have time for everything, uh, in the 50s, as you know, where this, uh, similar things were done. And there's many, many examples from Rand, divided rule being advocated to Brookings, etc., etc., etc. We have the Israeli ambassador Michael Oren, you know these, uh, these, these statements. So, what is the long and short of it? The long and short of it is that the discourse of conspiracy is so facilely dismissed in the West to cut off debate. It is engaged in, and maybe mongered, there's conspiracy mongering, where I'm from, of course, to some degree, for the same reason, to basically. Uh, absolve the region, if you want, from uh, local discourse, from responsibility. I think both are wrong, and I think uh, one should uh, look re uh, re revisit that. We have the heritage of 
the U.S. supporting Islamist groups all over the place, openly so, and even someone like John McCain um, saying here, for instance, that Allahu Akbar is just you know a casual statement when referring to jihadist groups, you know, uh, in Syria. So I think that is a, a quite a, uh, an interesting uh, way. We have. Uh, so I'm going to run to the final because I know our our. Um, all right, just something on history since we have Osama here, and this is my take on it, this is something I want to say about. Yes, Tawifiyah, the way we conceive it today is a 19th century construct, and the way it's framed today has to be looked at like as such. But if we speak about sectarianism as being, in one word, bias, and secularism being, in one word, non-discrimination, then we can see seeds of proto-secularism and proto-sectarianism prior to the modern era. And I think it is important, again, to look at it in an open manner and in a dialectical way. That is to say, to recognize, yes, there were rulers such as Akbar in uh, India and Fakhreddin in Lebanon, who, for instance, got rid of the jizya, who had Shia in their armies, who, you know, to a certain degree, exercised a non-discriminatory uh, form of governance. But you also then, of course, have the shadow side of it. And this is, again, not, and this is something very controversial, and again, I'm going to propose, is that um, the secular or the liberal order we have in, in Europe and also in the Middle East did not come, and when I'm from Qatar, you know, the reason why I could go to Qatar is because an emir one day said, I want to have ladies in universities and I want to have uh, Western universities there. That was not a democratic decision. And the same thing, if you want, with the, a lot of the reforms in Europe with Napoleon, who went to my country, Switzerland, and then right after that went to Egypt, to try to, you know, there's a lot of other issues there, but one of the things that was there was the Cold Napoleon, the notion of kind of, uh, of, of sort of equality, and some of his avatars, like Ibrahim Pasha, and by the way, some, I mean, I agree with you in 1960, but you know, as Ibrahim Pasha in 1832 already established in Beirut, the Diwan, which was, and also elsewhere, which equally divided between Muslims and Christians. So in a sense, the, the, the power sharing between constitutive sectarian groups goes back uh, prior uh, to, to 1860 even. Uh, and here we have the Pasha's notion uh, on this basically calling for um, a certain equality between the sects. Now, um, this authoritarianism is also visible, of course, we know well in Turkey, with uh, Mustafa Kemal out of Turk. And it didn't really, there was nobody in the Arab world really to take that scepter. Kunsade, <coughs> the founder of the Syrian Socialist Party, to some degree was similar to Ataturk, because in both of them, in a sense, created political parties uh, with a secular ideology. But in Syria, if you see this is a cover of one of the magazines there uh, in Lebanon, and you see there's even a sectarian bias, if you want, in the kind of, this is, of course, uh, the, the Syrian uh, Socialist Party has been co-opted by the Ba'ath Party, even by Syria. But you see that there are no Sunnis, for instance, on this uh, hagiography to leaders. Uh, this is the first mention of the word secularism, which was uh, 18... Um, which was coined in 1828 by uh, Elias Buktor, who was one of the translators of Napoleon, and it was coined before the word English, the English word of secularism was coined. The Arabic Almania, or Almania, was coined prior to the English word secularism. So just as a, as a notion that, that these things are not unrelated. I don't have time to go over all of this. Let me just go on to the kind of current situation, just a very quick thing on what I see as a solution. Um, I think we've been in a continuous devolution or escalation uh, from the Iraq war, as, as I think Banar Haddad and others would agree. And uh, some people said, you know, the Beirut Spring was marked as, as a sort of a, as a, a precursor to the Arab Spring. 
Uh, I think people who watched that already saw the sectarian divides there and that the infrastructure of sectarianism was not, in fact, dismantled despite all the uh, euphoria. Um, and we've seen, indeed, now the war in Hezbollah, if you want, which is now reaching new heights, took over. So in, in 2005 in Qatar, he asked, who's your number one enemy? The number one enemy at that point was Israel by 60%. Today, 15% say Israel, 60%, 70% say Iran. And you see that with all of Egypt and everywhere else. So the sectarianism as such, these, these fault lines have gotten to a degree which is uh, almost unbearable. And then what can we learn from history out of this? I think we're reaching a stage at which we maybe will reach this stage here, which is in Lebanon and the First World War, which is when there was so much you know, uh, pain and suffering that in a sense that was a crucible into which uh, Muslims and Christians could find uh, a common solidarity. And one hopes that this, this is the original martyr statue in Lebanon, which has now been removed, and on the right you have a Muslim Egyptian girl who painted uh, a mosque consoling a church after there were some desecrations in Egypt, if you remember back when. So I think this crisis that we're having today is creating you know, the extremes on all, on all sides, but also a big fair chunk, I know, by the way, it's a bit of a joke here, maybe this will wake you up, I know some Qataris and Saudis, I just was in the embassy in, 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 Doha, in Washington, who support, believe it or not, Donald Trump. So uh, there is a strange phenomenon here going on of, of, of uh, I think, a polarization. Uh, I'm not saying that because they're self-hating Muslims or whatever. I'm just saying that the, the, what, the current ideological uh, spectrum in the region is such that there's so much disgust on some matters uh, in some, some quarters with what's going on in terms of sectarianism that you might have this, what you have here, for instance, that if you ask people who is for a separation of, you know, religious privatization of religion, you see the two countries which lead the pack are Lebanon and Iraq. And I don't think it's fortuitous. It's because maybe these countries, a lot of that, were the ones most exposed to sectarianism. And so therefore, they are also the ones, I think, most likely to kind of uh, believe in a, in a, um, a non-sectarian solution. Um, of course, this is, again, something I'm trying to write the article online. I'm going to just do it on this topic. To what degree is the current conflict dictated by the rivalry, the new Cold War between America and Russia? And I think that is very important as well. Uh, the, there is, you, can, you can argue both ways. You can say the intense enmity between America and Russia is really trickling down into the local divides. Or you could, if you want to make the argument, say it's a social thing, and that is then translating into the, uh, on the national plane. But uh, I think that rivalry really is, in fact, key as well. And um, we've seen some progress of late, but I don't think nearly enough. And there's still this, this betting on the sectarian cards because, again, it is a very potent force that one cannot ignore. And this despite the fact that I was going to say last thing, that most people in the United States and in the region are against military involvement. Um, despite that, the sales to the region of weapons, the preparations for war are continuing unabated. And I don't think, despite all the intensity, unfortunately, that Mr. Kerry and others have really, really drawn the lessons yet of uh, you know, stopping this escalation and pouring oil into a uh, similar fire. But uh, this is a very quick uh, survey, maybe a segue, inshallah, into the next political session. Okay. Thank you very much.
same time, this panel has a wide scope uh, so in the name of uh, justice uh, and the better groundwork for later panels. I'm proposing that we have at least 20 minutes of discussion time and uh, five minutes for coffee break. And I'm actually proposing this, uh, but anyone opposed to label as college. Uh, <laughs> 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 